Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. I'm sorry for turning the chat on a little bit later um, than normally is, and I just clicked the button as the show started because I wasn't thinking about it. But hey, I've still got a fever, and I'm still doing radio, so you guys can cut me some slack. Peter Joseph is not on tonight's radio show. However, I do have a distinguished panel of distinguished panel guests on this distinguished show. Um, so the first of which I'm going to have um, announce himself in alphabetical order. Uh, it's going to be Aaron Moritz. Introduce yourself, Aaron. Hey, uh, my name's Aaron. I go by Say Days Ago on the forum, and I make videos on YouTube, uh, usually Infinite Yes will be branded across it if it's my video. And as is typically a tradition, whenever I have such a large panel on, somebody has the show on and has not paused it yet, which is why not we're me. listening to ourselves at the same time. So whoever has the show on, pause it. Still waiting. It's not me. <laughs> I don't think it's me. <laughs> All I've got on is Skype. Oh, yeah, me too. So it's nobody? Oh, no. Is it you? Hold on. That was me for a second, but now it should be off. <laughs> Can't be me. Can it? It might be me. <laughs> oh, it was me. Yay. <laughs> See what happens? You know, having a fever and doing radio shows can kill a friendship. All right. <laughs> continue your introduction, Aaron. Um, I think I was. I, I'm good for that. I'm about done. You're about done? Right, yeah, cool. or am done, am done. All right, let me add to his already done. He's the badass <laughs> mofo who'll be making some sweet videos up in here. Shit. Yeah, just watch. <laughs> and you were scared you weren't going to be good because you have a cold. Like, <laughs> it's not just the cold, it's the freaking fever that I've had for the last four days. Um, but anyway, um, so Say Days Ago is up in here. He's also the fellow who uncovered the shocking truth about the Zeitgeist movement. <laughs> you know, the only thing that I found mildly disappointing about that video, Aaron, was that you said that you uncovered the uh, the link behind the evil chimpanzee video, and there wasn't anything in your video about um, Jock being an evil chimpanzee. Well, there isn't anything in that video about him being a chimpanzee either, so um, I figured I'd just go with that. <laughs> You're right, I hadn't thought of that, so... Okay, now next up in alphabetical order, we have Al from Mexico. That would be me. I'm Al Alberto Cruz. Um, I go by Al on the B Radio Show, and I'm glad to be back, guys. Your name is Alberto Cruz. That sounds like a male model or something. <laughs> like from a soap opera or something, right? Yeah, I get that all the time. <laughs> and Alberto <laughs> Cruz, starring... <laughs> On this episode of The Young and the Restless. Yeah, that's right. Rico Swat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Any like... relation to Penelope? Penelope. Uh, well, she speaks Spanish and she's smoking hot, so, yeah. Excellent point. Well, yeah, you, you, you Spanish people and Hispanic people brought a lot of beautiful women into this world, not to mention one of my personal favorites, Jessica Alba. Yeah. Just thinking of earlier because I was watching my Dark Angel. Very good. TV. She. Oh yeah. She seems to be very. Too. She she seems to be very smart, huh? Very open-minded. 
maybe not as much as Jennifer Rodriguez, who was uh, talking about psych, the psychic the move, the psychic movement in the uh, at the psych is moving forward opening. Did you guys see her? I think that was yeah. Michelle Rodriguez. Michelle Rodriguez, right, 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 right. The gorgeous girl from Avatar, the tough, you know, tough as nails pilot chick. Yes, very yeah. cool character. Very good to see that there's a great mind behind the appearance, which of course just multiplies the sexiness factor by at least a dozen. So that brings <laughs> us on now. Let's see here. Next in up in, up for bids would be Frank Lee. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi everyone. This is Frank Lee. So. Uh, formerly a host of, or one of the hosts of uh, Z Radio, and now starting a new show called The Sideshow with Frank Lee So. It'll be a show that takes place outside of the movement. It's unattached to the movement, but it will be exploring the movement and all of the other movements that are seem to be moving in the same direction as we're moving, because, you know, that's what movements do. They move. So, moving right along... <laughs> It's a good thing that they don't require movement in this this uh, movement, though, because I'm not a very good dancer. So. <laughs> any any relation yeah. to Bruce Lee? <laughs> oh, no, actually, it's frankly so so being the last name, Lee just yeah. being the middle name. Isn't that and kind of a I, French Creole name? So well, yeah, and actually, it's uh, it's all kind of based on a joke, right? Because. Um, my mother's maiden name is so S E A U X, and it's spelled uh, it's spelled S E A U X, but it's pronounced like so. Uh, and so the the running joke in the family is our, our cousin maybe so, and our other cousin probably so, and yeah. <laughs> and then on occasion I like to sew. Actually, I don't. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's the whole so uh, not so family reunion thing, right? Because and then you know, when one of you dies, you reap what you sow when the Grim Reaper shows up. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, so my name. It's actually an internet name. Uh, it's not my real name, uh, and it's based on that little joke, standing running joke there. So if two yeah. of you were together, would it be so and so? Yes. As a matter of fact, I start about. Uh, I, I wanted to open a uh, a bar, kind of a lounge type bar, once upon a time that would have been called So and So's. Gotcha. All right. Well, then let's move on to Tenero. Hey, what's going on? This is uh, Tenero, the uh, Louisiana coordinator and the host of the not so oftenly held uh, Louisiana podcast. And I'm just going to sit back and count how many times Frank says the word so. All right, well, then your involvement should be interesting in this particular conversation for sure. For those of you who <laughs> don't remember, I uh, was given permission to re-upload as a pod, the podcast that I did with uh, um, Tenero on you know, his Louisiana podcast. Now I noticed that we have uh, Mexico, Canada, and Louisiana uh, represented, because I did have a show a while ago where it was basically Zeitgeist Louisiana, because the two of you called in. Um, uh, <laughs> and, uh, so and tonight... Michigan. Well, yeah, Michigan, that that place that I that I tend to try to pretend I don't live in. Um, tonight's uh, um, tonight's subject, as raised by Frank Lee, is going to be the topic of private property. Uh, how did you phrase that again, Frank? Um, not entirely sure. I don't remember because I, you know, it, it's. 
however you titled the show is kind of how I phrased it. That's all right. I'll do something original and look at the description of the show to tell me. And there it will tell me (laughs) private ownership and how it is the true root of all of our social problems today, including our inability to remember shows that we make about the topic. (laughs) Yes. Right, because like today you didn't even know that there was a show today. You're like, hey, I didn't know we had a date, you know, nailed down for that. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> well, because we talked about putting it off for uh, a day or two or maybe three. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> I, I figured out that doing radio shows while having the uh, while having a fever was not necessarily to my best interest. Not that that stopped me from doing that presentation to those wacky libertarians recently either. But um, <laughs> which. It's sad to say, I think it was a bit of a waste of time because those people had head like heads like rocks. But um, instead of um, uh, um, what did you say uh, the the uh, in that that uh, speech of those those guys who who were who uh, the libert the libertarians instead of right. libertarians they should be imprisonitarians, huh? <laughs> they wouldn't really like that you said it that way, but yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. So, um, all right. Uh, as I said here in the chat, wow, a great panel. Um, you know, the cool thing about this is, is that the funny thing is, is that I, I get a lot of comments, you know, compliments on the shows that we do that are like this that don't have any super uber special guests on them and all that. And they always get uh, like the initial li- listenership is never as high. But afterwards, you know, we usually get lots of downloads through word of mouth and things of that nature. So I'm hoping that people get the idea that it is still worth listening to V Radio, just be, you know, even if I don't have some high-profile guest on. Speaking of high-profile, my last V Radio show was once again done with me having a fever. Uh, Roger Stahl from Militainment Inc. and um, the new film Returning Fire: uh, Interventions into the Video Game Culture. Uh, that was a very good show of me and Roger, and uh, I was able to get a sneak preview into his new film. Uh, you can read the blog uh, review that I did, which he liked enough that he linked it to his own personal blog uh, at vradio.org, v-radio.org. Um, there you can click blog, and you'll see the name of the review was It's Just a Game. Um, he definitely I can't, shed I a can't lot. wait to see his movie, man. Yeah, it is. It's a very good movie. Uh, it, like I said in, during the show, like my only reservation about it is that it's a little shorter than I would have liked. But especially the last segment, I don't really want to describe it too much because it would ruin the impact. But the segment about the Iraqi who set up a paintball gun to be shot at him via the <laughs> Internet. Yeah, it sounds like it would be funny. And then you watch it and you're like, you're realizing, wow, this is, this is not really funny at all. Um, so... Um, I forgive you for laughing at it this time, Tanaro, but next time I'm going to use the computerized paintball gun that I have pointing at you directly to shoot you in the back of the head for laughing. <laughs> You're welcome to. No problem. I thought I'd get that straight. But no, dude. The thing about that, too, is there's that man-cow. I guess there's this guy who calls himself the man-cow. He's a uh, <laughs> some kind of uh, shock jock type on the Internet. Yeah. You know who that guy is, Aaron? I just know who he is because Howard Stern makes fun of him all the time. But, well, that's, you know. I mean, yeah, you know, one shock jock to another, of course. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'd have to say, at least from what I saw, I can't imagine not preferring Howard Stern over this guy because he made a lot of racist jokes and 
you know, one of the things that happened when he was interviewing this Iraqi while he was in that experiment, you know, that's essentially what it was. It was also an artistic expression, but, you know, was he, he explained to him, you know, he was he, the, the DJ's asking why he's doing this. He's like, well, my father and my brother were killed in Iraq. And he says, oh, gee, I'm sorry. I still don't see the point. And I'm just like, I'm I'm going to reach through this freaking video and strangle you, <laughs> you know? Just yeah, shut up. You know, sounds pretty I'm horrible. Such a freaking jerk. You know, it's that's one of the things I put in my. It was like the one time that I allowed myself to bend a little bit on the professional side during my uh, review was that I said that the reason I'm going to mention this segment of the film is because I'm hoping somebody shows uh, that particular radio jockey. Um, this article so that they can read me describing the image of me extending my middle finger to them <laughs> because that's about how I felt about the guy by the time I was finished with that segment I was so disgusted that anybody makes money acting like that but um, in any case uh, so private property um, I'm going to let you start Frank since this was your idea <laughs> okay oh and Frank um Take a moment, first of all, to describe what your new show, Up and Coming Show, is about. Okay, well, the Up and Coming Show, which I'll probably be starting this coming Tuesday or Thursday. It'll be it'll be one of those two days this coming week that I'm going to start doing that show. And it'll be every Tuesday and Thursday. And I'll probably do it about uh, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. <laughs> to try to make it to where we can get the greatest number of audience. Um, and it's basically about all of the different movements. I've been noticing that uh, right alongside of the Zeitgeist movement, there is the uh, the Community Planet movement. There's the um, there's the Freedom movement. There's a there's actually a petition or a uh, a thing that you floating around right now that you can sign um, called the Free World something or other. I don't remember it exactly. Huh? Yeah, the Free World World Charter. Charter. Right. Um, Which is pretty much in line with the movement, and and it's based on the movement and on the Venus Project. Although, uh, I haven't talked to the creator of that today. He said that he uh, he doesn't have an endorsement, but he has permission. They kind of know that he's doing that and that it's based on uh, on their stuff, but uh, but he doesn't actually have their uh, verbal endorsement. Um, so, but at least, and I have to give him credit, at least within his material, everything he says is in line with what we advocate and he does say, look, if you have any questions, ask these people. And he points to us. So so i got to give him kudos for that one. And and I like the idea. Now, who started this is what the people in the chat room are asking. Right. Uh, and for, uh, for journalistic integrity's sake, at this time, I'm not going to give out his specific name unless he says that he's ready for people to know exactly who he is. But uh, and I haven't gotten an answer back yet from him on whether or not he's an actual member of the movement or not. But I know that his his uh, 
his graphic has a butterfly, a monarch butterfly in it, and I'm pretty sure that once upon a time, about uh, six or seven months ago, I saw someone having a signature like that in the forums. But so so I'm pretty sure he's a member of the movement. I think he is, but uh, I'm not ready to give out his name right now until I have that permission. Full disclosure will not be given in the name of journalistic integrity here on V Radio. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, I signed the charter already. Yep. All right. Well, I did now, too. Let's go ahead and I guess then get back to the topic at hand, um, which is supposed to be the issue of private property and private ownership, things of that nature, which is what you wanted to do the show about. So, um, go ahead, Frank. You're on the hot seat. Okay. Well. Looking at our situation and where we are today, we uh, within this movement especially, we it's real easy to see and to say, you know, the monetary system is pretty much at fault for almost every aberrant uh, paradigm we face today. All of the aberrant behavior, all the criminal activity, 90-some-odd percent easily traceable to the monetary system, to to money specifically. Right. Um, so, it, you got to start thinking. So you start thinking that uh, that all right. Well, money's to blame for all of this. But then you start thinking, if you think logically and rationally about it, you start thinking, well, wait a minute. Money is not a conscious thing. And granted, we actually can't really say what exactly is conscious and what isn't. You know. Uh, some piece of paper might have a consciousness, but do a bunch of bits and bytes on a computer have consciousness, which is what most money really is anyhow? I kind of doubt it. So it's not a conscious thing. It's not something that can direct us. So what is? What is the cause of money? And in thinking about that and looking back over history, what led to money? Where did money come from? Well, it came from uh, the need for trade and the need for ease of trade. It, it really kind of helped with easing trade uh, barriers where we had a barter system once upon a time and people were having to carry their goods and then they were having to try to uh, barter. They were trying to uh, argue, well, okay, my this wheat stock actually is a very good wheat stock. It was grown in this kind of soil, and it had this kind of watering and uh, treatments and blah, 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 you know, and, and had the finest manure, you know, and so it was really well fertilized. So this wheat stock is more valuable than his wheat stock because his wheat stock was grown in clay, and mine was grown in really good sandy loam. So, so, uh, so you had a lot of that kind of stuff going on, and money just made it a lot easier. All right, so where did the barter come from? Well, barter came from uh, the fact that people needed to be able to trade their goods because they were growing in abundance when when, uh, when they started growing food, they had to start controlling the land because there were too many other tribes out there who were still nomadic. And these nomadic tribes would go in and raid these settlements and take all of their food stock. So they ended up having to guard their land 
and this meant that they had to basically claim control of that land. Well, and claiming control, that meant some form of ownership. So really, basically, what it comes down to is ownership leads to trade, leads to money, leads us to where we are today. And, and it was it was really more of a back step that I took to get to that conclusion. It is interesting that you point that out, and I don't think a lot of people recognize the fact that it was the agricultural issue that made man decide that maybe I need to own land that's mine and nobody else's. You know, because before that we were all hunter-gatherers, did a lot of traveling, things of that nature. And the problem is is that massive agriculture is not something that the planet can handle forever, at least not using the methods that we're using currently. Right. Right. So what we really need to do is move more toward a... Uh, a sustainable method of like permaculture, which really, whenever you start to look back at the historic uh, historical records and the anthropological uh, anthropological records of it, a lot of these older societies, these hunter gatherer societies that moved into agrarian societies, uh, some of them verged on it. You know, they were. Uh, they were a kind of a crossover between the two where they were still doing a lot of hunter-gathering, but they were also growing crops. And they'd have to kind of center their crops around where the herds typically moved if they didn't want to move. Otherwise, they had to move, you know, so they'd wait till the end of a season, a planting season or a harvest season, and then they'd move to another area to follow the herd and regain their hunting stock again. Meanwhile, they had the grain and what such that they were growing, as well as the fact that a lot of the trees, you know, when you go to South America and Central America, you'll find that a lot of the bananas have been uh, cultivated over the years to become what they are today. And that took many hundreds, if if not thousands of years to do. So these people were actually growing agriculture for thousands of years, even though they were moving around throughout the jungles and the regions that they had, the tropical rainforest and such. So there's a lot of that, you know, where you've got a lot of crossover between hunter-gatherers and agriculturalists. Um and then you still have, like uh, here in the States, we had the Apache Indians. The Apache Indians were strictly nomadic. They did not grow their own crops. So they would raid the villages of uh, of those who did, as well as taking their, you know, their hunting that they would have. And they typically only did that whenever times were scarce, when when they were running low and the hunting season wasn't going well it was about the only time they really bothered with raiding another village so when we think about that the uh by the way are you still counting tonoro how many uh, sows am i up to so far no i lost count <laughs> oh you evaded his calculations <laughs> I guess I said so enough that he just kind of lost count. <laughs> I lost count because I'm watching this person in the chat room try to make the human nature arguments. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, they, they clarified that. They clarified that. But we're safe. Right. The, the human nature alarm was... <laughs> so, um, anyway, uh, 
All right. Well, let me start with you, Al. Do you have anything to say about what he said? Yeah, it's uh, well, it's undeniable that uh, that money and and as a way of trade has helped humankind throughout its history and the history of the first civilizations and all. And uh, and actually, uh, this way of exchange is is what uh, started the first empires. This is what helped them to to grow. And, and start invading other tribes and other cities and other uh, human societies for, for, for ages. So, so w the problem with money is when we started to, when we began to distort its real value, because money in, in huge amounts will corrupt you absolutely, like they say. So, so I totally agree. It was good for a while. But now we have come to a, such a distorted society with so, with so much uh, corruption and so much dis distortion. So, uh, uh, I mean, it's amazing that now the, uh, the corporations like Nestle and such are actually buying entire protected areas, country towns, to steal water resources and then sell it to us in uh, plastic bottles. Even more expensive than gasoline. That's just outrageous. So, so money just is just so outdated, so old-fashioned, and we definitely need to remove money in order to remove private private property. Right. And all right, I'm gonna move on to Aaron. Um, okay. Well, talking about private property, it just a lot of people today have almost an emotional attachment it seems to their property like uh they enjoy owning things but i think once you start looking at it from a perspective of uh access like we talk about owning things you know it becomes such a huge burden and i'm talking about this mostly cuz i'm moving in 4 days and having to move all this furniture and couches and TVs like it's a huge stress and if i could just well, I wouldn't have to move, first of all, if our building, which is private property, wasn't sold to someone else who's turning them into condos and then selling them to other people. But anyway, um, just to me, pri private property, I don't get the romanticism a lot of people have about it because to me it's always seemed like um, dragging you down or like a burden, some something holding you back almost. <laughs> Right. Yeah, like like some people I heard many people say say in the past like no no wait a minute I want to have the freedom to choose between three hundred pair of shoes right I mean I don't want I don't want to wear the same shoes that you will be wearing so I want to have the freedom to have this as my private property I want to choose uh, and you know this is this is a, a very repetitive argument that many people seem to. Yeah, they associate freedom with ownership, yeah. and I don't know. It's yeah. all very convoluted, at least from my perspective. Exactly, and and what I often say is that what if you didn't even have to choose? What if you could just design your your favorite shoes with 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 in in the computer with every uh, you know every technological advancement on them, with every aesthetic you you like, with every color, with everything you would like. And then and then put it on the computer, and then have a machine that can make only 
that pair of shoes for you. So you would have this, you know, whatever you call this um, exclusivity, per se, that no one else can have your shoes. You didn't have to choose them. You, you made them yourself. But they, don't, they can't see that, right? Yeah, it's a difference between private property and just personal items, I guess, in my mind. Like, some things are obviously like your phone. It's your personal item or your yeah. shoes, like you said. It's mine. It's mine. No one else <laughs> has it. It's mine. You, you have two of them, but I have one, and it's mine. It's mine. <laughs> right? right? Yes, it's yours. It's yours. So fucking ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to let Tanaro go. Okay, I, I'm uh, I'm in agreement with Aaron that I, I differentiate between um, private property and personal effects is the term that I typically use whenever I'm describing something like your toothbrush or your cell phone, something that's just yours. Uh, with regard to uh, private property, um, often whenever I have this kind of discussion with people, when I get whenever I get into arguments, among the first things I'll ask of the person is, at what point do you own your property? Because if you're uh, if you're if you were like me growing up, you probably lived in your parents' home, uh, which of course isn't uh, uh, isn't actual ownership, but it's your parents' home. Uh, uh, if you're like me right now, you more than likely rent, which obviously isn't a form of land uh, a property ownership. If you uh, take out a mortgage to buy a home, you're still paying for your home. You're uh, technically uh, you could get away with saying that your bank owned your home until you're done paying for it. And then when you pay off your mortgage, you're paying property taxes. If at any point in time, uh, uh, while renting, uh, paying a mortgage, or uh, paying your property taxes, if you neglect to pay any of those, you will not have that home anymore. So at what point do you own your home? It doesn't generally happen in most people's lifetimes. And, I mean, that is, of course, unless it's getting passed on to them by somebody else. Well, there's really like, never a point that you have to, or that you can get away with no longer play, paying your property taxes. I mean, right. almost every nation that you could possibly live in charges a property tax for your land. Right. Actually, that's a very that's a very good point. I wasn't thinking about when you brought that up, and that that kind of plays into the whole point that the freemen on the land bring up. Um, and not just even not even just taking things as far as the Freeman. Uh, Michael Badnerick does a really good thing about the Constitution. He's one of the only libertarians that I still consider an influential person to me. And uh, he brings up the fact that you don't really own your car um, unless you have the allodial title for said car. Uh, man, allodial? You, in order to, yes, allodial meaning, um, I forget the word for it, but basically in order to officially actually own your car... Um, you have to get the manufacturer's statement of origin, which is not something that car dealerships are generally willing to give you. But if you actually own your car, you don't have to register it. Um, people think that they own their car via the title, but they actually don't. Um, now, mind you, uh, just by owning your car you know, through a lodial title and things of that nature um, doesn't mean the cops aren't going to stop you, because they are. And in most cases, they're ignorant of the truth of it, so you're going to be sitting there for a long time while they call their superiors, making sure that you're right. Then you can continue driving. Um, you know, there are a few examples of people who have managed to pull this off in the United States, but yeah, for sure, uh, virtually all property you have is not really yours. Um, your kids are not really yours either. That's what your birth certificate is for, um, social security number, things of that nature. Um that's what essentially gives them the right to take them from you uh, via the state if they so determine. 
Um, I still don't, I mean, I, I don't dislike what the Freemen are trying to do, but I think it kind of like income tax protesting is just a formula for going to jail at this stage. Um, as much as my hats are off to them, it's not something that I can repeat while I have children, because they'll be more than happy to take them from me, too. Um, but uh, overall, though, yeah, I, I get what you mean. You know, um, and now to, to get to my addition to this particular point at this stage of the conversation, um, they do feel that their property is their freedom, and the basis of that, this is another thing actually that I, I found recently, was a very good article on the topic about how the Constitution was actually a document for the purposes of creating plutocracy. It was not a document meant to protect the common man. It was a document meant to con um, protect the aristocracy of the colonies, which is what the quote-unquote founding fathers belonged to. I'm going to go ahead and link this article here in the chat. Um, I'll buy that. Well, yeah, it's it's very true. Um, in fact, uh, like just reading from some of it here, um, Americans are conditioned to see our present form of government as a representative democracy. We're almost incapable of understanding that we, in fact, live in a plutocracy. The United States Constitution was deliberately constructed so that the nation is ruled by the wealthy. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the term plutocracy, plutocracy is essentially ruled by the wealthy. Um, basically, rich people are in charge, which... In the United States, we have kind of a unique plutocracy in that the entire time we're being duped into believing we actually live in a representative democracy, which is ridiculous, because you can't get into office unless you're either rich or willing to sell your soul to the rich. One of two things will happen. There are extremely rare exceptions like Ron Paul or Dennis Kucinich, but the only reason why the establishment can't get rid of them is because their local constituency happens to know who they are and loves them. They know Dennis because he was the mayor of Cleveland for a long time, and they know Ron Paul because he was the doctor for the majority of the people in that area, particularly the obstetrician. So <laughs> that's one of the things that <coughs> gets you out there. You know, he they, those people are in rare instances where that can happen. Now, this is all still relevant to property rights, I assure you. But basically, you know, he goes on to say we've been we've been taught to believe that there was only one American Revolution, a struggle to throw off the tyrannies of Great Britain. And relative to that revolution, we're conditioned to believe that the heroes were revolutionary patriots such as George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Sam Adams, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, James, James Otis, you know, the Sons of Liberty and the Committees of Correspondence. But in reality, there were two American revolutions, the revolt against the British depression by Americans and the revolt against wealthy American merchants and financiers by the common people of America. The first revolution was completed with the end of the Revolutionary War in 1781. The second American Revolution is seldom, if ever, taught in our schools because it would make clear just what kind of country this is. It's a plutocracy, the rule of the wealthy. And this is the second American Revolution, which we must now complete. Only a few of its battles have been won, and much remains in our efforts to rid ourselves of the ideology and practice of plutocracy. Um, basically, here a quote from... Uh, um, well, actually, rather than reading the whole thing, I'm going to go over basically, but uh, they pointed out that, you know, the majority of the people, you know, involved with the writing of the Constitution were all extremely wealthy. <coughs> uh, give you an example of what colonial life was really like. In colonial America, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. Sound familiar? Um, <laughs> in 1687 in Boston, this is in 1687, 
the top 1% owned about 25% of the wealth. By 1770, the top 1% owned 44% of the wealth. In those same years, the poor, those who owned no property, represented 14% in 1687, and then up to 29% in 1770. Um, Neil. Yes. Uh, the late 1600s, wasn't this when uh, uh, John Locke and his treatise of government came out? I think so. Yeah, it's around the same time period. Same kind of thinking, too. Now, yep. in the various colonies, the wealthy merchant class introduced property qualifications for voting in order to disenfranchise the poor and protect their own privileges. In Pennsylvania, white males had to have 50 pounds of lawful money or own 50 acres of land. The result was that only 8% of the rural population and 2% of the urban population of Philadelphia could vote. George Washington was the richest man in America, a man who enslaved 216 humans, uh, beings who were not emancipated and fell after he and his wife had both died. Benjamin Franklin had a personal fortune worth at least $20 million in today's equivalent money. He was a champion of the Quaker plutocrats in Philadelphia and vigorously opposed the Democratic Western farmers of Pennsylvania. John Hancock was an extremely wealthy Boston merchant who had made his fortune as a military contractor during King George's War. In 1748, Hancock engineered a merciless devaluation of Massachusetts currency as a cure to inflation, which reduced huge numbers of workers to poverty. Alexander Hamilton grew rich through his father-in-law's connections, James Madison created a large fortune which, uh, with his vast slave plantations. The top 10% of the white male leaders in America owned half of the wealth and held as slaves one-seventh of the country's population. Uh, to common people, freedom meant freedom from the oppression of colonial aristocracy as well as freedom from British rule. One of their favorite slogans was, common people must be uh, free um, from all foreign or domestic oligarchy. Note the domestic. They fought in terms of liberation from all oppression, not just independence from Britain. During colonial times, the common good was sometimes in control of their local governments. To control the Boston Town Meeting, urban workers, artisans, and country farmers formed an alliance in 1768. A group of Boston merchants complained at these meetings. This is mind you, this is their complaint. At these meetings, the lowest mechanics discuss upon the most important points of government with utmost freedom. Um, in other words, they're whining because the common people were you know, basically controlling the meetings. And at that time, town meetings were important because everything was decided democratically, one man, one vote. Um, and then there's another part of this complaint where it says the common people were not taking orders. They were speaking and acting for themselves. They were making it clear that their vision of a new society was not that of the wealthy merchant class. Um to read just a little bit more. In Philadelphia, the working class was successful in gaining political power. In 1770, the mechanics held their first political meeting specifically restricted to their own class. By 1772, the working class had organized their own political organizations, the Patriotic Society, to promote their own candidates and agenda. By mid-1776, laborers, artisans, and small trades would take command in Philadelphia. Um, in Pennsylvania, the Constitution was created primarily by farmers and artisans. You can also generally tell the differences here. But um, James Madison was at one point quoted as saying the the wealth of the nation should rule the nation. Um, they talk about different you know differences in attitude. You know, like the rich could buy their way out of the draft. Officers received much more money than common soldiers. Common soldiers often received no money at all. 
During the war, some, some common soldiers who had not been paid attacked the headquarters of the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, forcing the members to flee to Princeton across the river. Um, but anyway, uh, without getting too much further into this, um, the, the reason I brought all of this up is that where all of these attitudes about private property came from was this era where you have the aristocracy trying to protect itself from the majority. It's also where you get um, all this attitude about majority rule being bad and, you know, democracy being bad and we should have this system of elected officials instead, never mind the fact that we're going to make sure that the elected officials are always the rich to ensure that we maintain power. You know, that's the this is the climate that this came out of. And most people are not aware of the fact that a lot of our ideas about private property equaling freedom come from that time period. Now, the reason why this is extremely relevant is that what ends up being the issue is this. Of course, we're not interested anywhere near as much in somebody's individual private property. When we're talking about the problems of private property, we're not talking about your house, your toothbrush, you know, uh, <laughs> stupid things like that. Your individual stuff is not really what's the issue. When it becomes an issue is when you think that it's your right to own, say, the entire manufacturing infrastructure. Um, do you have the right to own the majority of the fresh water on a given continent? Do you have the right to own the air? You know, <laughs> we haven't gotten that far yet, but we're getting there. And the more we pollute the earth, you know, I think that we're going to run into a situation where people are actually paying for filtered air. Um, so, uh, basically... Um, when you look into the history of the United States, you find out that a lot of these attitudes about private property were created by the rich people who were not really much less corrupt than the British, you know, who ruled before. You know, they just wanted to be free of the monarchy, you know, which to them was oppression. Um, but these same people thought that the common workers, you know, could also be oppressive. <coughs> so that's where all that language came from. You know, something to think about is that you're dealing with... Um, a group of people, basically, who were trying to protect themselves against the majority that might eventually get sick of them owning, you know, 40% of the wealth. Right. Go ahead, Al. And we, we must not uh, forget that the stuff we buy end up owning ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a few years ago, I decided to to clean my house, so I started to putting, to putting all stuff on my front yard, Old computers, electronics, old toys, old sport equipment, hundreds of documents, papers, and all kind of crap. I practically trashed 60% of the stuff I had in my house. Since then, we buy 70% less than we used to. We are now buying more food from the community market than we buy from places like Walmart and stuff like that. We try to avoid superstores uh, as much as we can. One of my one of my favorite B radio shows is the one in which you interviewed Tammy Strobel, right? Where she where she explained so beautifully how to live with a minimalistic mindset. That show is freaking awesome. If you think about it, it's absolutely true. All those things we buy every day are like more chains on top of the ones we already have attached to our feet, right? I sold my car about a year ago. The freaking thing was like having an extra wife. I used to spend around $200 per month on gasoline. And overall, I think I paid 
the car twice if you consider its maintenance, the insurance, the services, all the pieces I had to change from the engine, the tire, suspension, and all that, parking fees, car wash fees, and the hundreds of hours wasted in the traffic in this chaotic city. Nowadays, I run about a mile to the nearest subway station, and when I arrive to my destination, I run another mile to my workplace. In the evening, I repeat the process to get back home. Uh, I lost about 10 pounds in about six months, and I feel so damn good, man. <laughs> so so we, um, we, we, we are learning, my, uh, my wife and me, to, uh, to have this mindset and, and to keep it growing, you know. And, and it's, it's so, so good. I mean, you, you feel less stressed out. I mean, you, you have less, less thing to be worried and concerned about. And, it, and overall, you feel better all the time. It's true. The show yeah, that I did, like, the, real quickly, the companion show I did to that was the uh, why money and the stuff we buy with it does not actually make you feel good. Um, yeah. Which is what led me to then bring Tammy on because she was one of the people quoted in the article we were reading in that one. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Aaron. I was just basically going to agree with them and saying, like, yeah, as I'm moving, like, everything that I'm putting in the giveaway pile for to get rid of because we're moving into a smaller place it feels like i feel lighter almost like it's some it's one less thing i have to think about or care about ever again it's yeah. uh yeah fucking good um yeah go ahead uh frank, frank. <laughs> uh, yeah when when we think about what we own and how much of it we own the real the big question becomes why why do you need so much? And more importantly, why do you feel the need to own it? You know, that's that's really probably the key issue right there. If we sit and think about why do I need to own this? Why can't I just have access to it? You know, um, and part of it is, okay, we worry about somebody might come and take it away from us if I don't own it. And that's one of the biggest arguments I run into on the forums with regard to uh, no property, uh, not owning property and things, um, no ownership. Um, the biggest argument is, well, if no one owns anything and there are no laws, then just anyone can come into my home and take the stuff I have. Now, a lot of the people who have said, okay, yeah, but I can always go and easily replace it. So, screw it. I'll just let them have it, and I'll just get it brand new. I'll go and replace it. I don't agree with that entirely because if someone is coming into your home and taking the things that you have, rather than going to the distribution center and getting them themselves for free... Right. Then this there's there's some problem somewhere in society. Th this points out a problem. There's a problem somewhere, and it must be addressed. Because you know any criminal activity really points to a root problem somewhere else. When we think about uh, all the people going around committing theft in our current society, why are they doing this? They're doing it because they either have too much money, too much stress, or not enough money and still too much stress. 
Nine out of ten. That's what. That's the whole reason is because of stress, stress-related issues that are related directly to money and the monetary system and this idea of ownership. Right. Um. There's. So so when we say no ownership, it's not that you can't have personal items. But when you think about the gift societies, and this is one of the reasons that I bring it up most often when I start talking about this ownership issue and money and trade. Uh, when we start talking about that, when I, I bring up the gift societies, the gift economies, right? Because in those gift economies, they're all pretty much related directly to the hunter-gatherer types and those who are making the crossover between hunter-gatherer and agriculture, uh, agrarian societies, um, those people don't own land. They don't think of owning land. Like when uh, when our far founding forefathers came over to this great country of ours, slaughtered <laughs> <laughs> great, great people. Patriotism there. Yeah. <laughs> um, when, when our founding fathers came over and founded this great land on the backs of the natives who already lived here mm -hmm. and and wanted to trade for the land, they're like, well, here, let us give you these beads and trinkets for this much land. And the natives were like, okay, we really appreciate the gifts and trinkets, and you can use the land as much as you want. And, and the natives were like, you had to give me a bunch of trinkets for this? To, you, the land's there. Nobody owns it. Go ahead and use it. Wait. No. You stupid red skin person. you got to understand. We want to own it. Right? We want to own it. We want to own you. We want to control it. We want to control you. We want you to stay the hell off of our land because we own it. And the Redskins didn't understand this, and I realize that's kind of probably a, 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 a bit of a racist term to say Redskins, but I mean... Well, uh, being a Native American on the call, I'll give you an exception in this case. Uh, yeah, and being 16th Native American myself, <laughs> but uh, uh, in any case, the, the Native Americans didn't understand the concept of ownership it made no sense you can own a bow you can own a knife you can own a horse well kind of he couldn't really own the horse the horse was his own spirit and if he chose to be with you then he was your horse and you were his rider but there was no real ownership you could you couldn't really own anything except what you could carry with you right and so that's why I bring up these gift economies, because they understood that you cannot really own anything unless it'll fit in the ground with you. And even then, you don't even own your body. The the earth is going to reclaim it one of these days. Despite all of the work that we do with embalming bodies and trying to preserve it so that it lasts for damn ever, it goes back in the box. It all goes back in the box. It doesn't matter. All you did by embalming your body was put off the inevitable. It's still eventually going to return to the system, folks. Yeah. So all you did by having yourself embalmed was show just how freaking greedy you are. Well, uh, I don't know uh -huh. about that. I, I could probably take exception to that. Even if you managed to 
perfectly, absolutely perfectly preserve your body. All you did was provide a fossil for the next few million generations in front of us. <laughs> yeah. To study your body, right? Yeah, all, those, all you're those... gonna, all you're gonna be is a fossil for somebody right. to study. <laughs> and in this, gonna... it, in, in this display, you're... children, we see the capitalist moron. That's right. <laughs> you see how he was so self, in, you know, interested that he had to have his body preserved. He used, you know, useful chemicals for the purpose of preserving his useless body. You know, he does have a purpose now. We can point to him so that you can see just how stupid people were back in the day. Now let's move on to the next next exhibit. (laughs) Well, you know, honestly, when you think about that, right, because when you are before, well, before you're born, you are two separate single-celled organisms living separately in in seas of saltwater solution, essentially. And, And then these two cells meet. And they combine, and then they split, and 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 they split, until nine months later, evolution happens, right? This thing that, this process that took millions of years, if not billions, happens in only nine short months, and out pops this whole different life form. And meanwhile, during this process, you were taking in... Chemi- uh, uh, chemical compounds that was part of your mother. She imbibed uh, food and water and what have you. And if she took on chemicals, guess what? Part of your makeup is those chemicals. If she took drugs, part of you is drugs. Everything that you are made of came from the system. So to try to preserve all of that and prolong it, all you're really trying to do is to deny the system, deny feeding back into the system that you, that provided for you for so long. You know, that's, um, let me go ahead and let Sonero go, and then I'll go next. Did you have anything more to add? No, that's about it. We're talking about Sonero, but yeah. Point. Yeah, I mean, what it, what it boils down to is the whole notion of land ownership. It's an arbitrary perspective. It has no uh, intrinsic or natural uh attribute to it. It has no value. Uh, as uh, Frank was mentioning earlier, and, it, and it's an argument that I like to use every now and then. Uh, when the early settlers came over from Europe and uh, and they encountered the Native Americans, uh, uh, the Native Americans were just oblivious to the whole notion of land ownership. It didn't make any sense. Um, that's one argument that, uh, that I have used. And then another one is the argument I used earlier, that if you really break it down, you could make the argument that land ownership doesn't actually exist. On a few levels, it doesn't exist legally because no matter what happens, you can still lose your home, and it do, and it doesn't even it doesn't even sync up naturally because no matter what happens, eventually you will inevitably lose your home and everything you possess, right down to your body. I mean, right. land owner land ownership is on every um, perceivable level false. It it is a it is a bogus perspective on every single level. Right. Instead of instead of us being so worried about uh, having some land and property to to leave to our kids when we die, we should be more concerned about what kind of society we are leaving to them. Instead of instead of leaving their our home or our car or whatever. We should be more concerned of of the type of society we are leaving behind, right? That right. makes perfect sense, you know. Because really, if you're leave, you could leave 
and this is for all those millionaires and billionaires out there, folks. Listen up. You could leave billions of dollars for your children and your grandchildren and your grandchildren's grandchildren. But you know something? All of the land and all of the property that you think you own can easily be taken as soon as you stop paying your taxes, the right. stuff that ensures that you get to keep it. And, like and even if you... And it, I'm sorry. Uh, even if you don't get it taken away that way, there's always natural disasters. I mean, uh, hurricanes, fires, floods, whatever. That uh, those can uh, even quicker. <laughs> those can take right. kind of take possessions away Loose. even more quickly. Right. right. But Loose I was speaking everything. more specifically of the societal issues. You know, the, if you if you create and maintain a society and support a society that can do this kind of thing to you and or your children and or your children's children, then what? Are you saying to them? Exactly. Okay, well, I can tell this, you have something to say. I'll go ahead, and then I'll go. <laughs> I mean, this this type of guy is like uh, Carlos Slim, which is the richest, the richest, according to Forbes magazine, he's the richest guy in the world. This guy is, um, uh, I mean, I mean... What is he? What is he going to leave to his kids, to his to his descendants? I mean, uh, just a bunch of money. I mean, this guy had the uh, the nerve and the courage and the and the uh, evilness to gather all this money. Does he actually think that that his kids have the same attitude and they are going to uh, they that they are going to save it and keep it like he did? I mean. He he should be more concerned about the the type of society that he's leaving behind, because this there's so much poverty in in his country in Mexico. So he he has the money to maintain entire communities for years for decades, just him alone. But he doesn't give a fuck because he's just a selfish uh, a selfish man like the rest of the uh, super rich. Like this very old Alan Greenspan, I mean, this guy is about to drop dead anytime soon. And what is he going to leave to his family, right? <laughs> right. Go ahead, Tanero. Yeah, I, I agree with Al completely because uh, you're, you're you're not going to convince me that the rich guy who sacrificed his whole life to get rich and to get his property, you're not going to convince me that his children that he's leaving his property to is going to appreciate it as much as him enough to actually preserve it. Uh, preserve ownership of it. Uh, but the point I was really going to uh, to make was something related to what Frank had said earlier, um, and, it's re and it re relates to leaving property to your children. I've had someone to bring up a similar argument to me uh, whenever I mention um, the Venus Project and uh, in a resource-based economy, property ownership isn't going to be going on anymore. And the, the argument that they, that they presented uh, was uh, something to the effect of, well, I, I like land ownership. I like the notion of land ownership. I want to be able to leave something to my children whenever I pass away, <laughs> wouldn't you? To which I responded, to which I responded, sure, I would like to leave my children something. I don't want to leave them land. I want to leave my children in a society where land isn't necessary. And I, and I can even do better than that. I'm going to leave your children a society where land ownership isn't necessary. Top right. that. <laughs> Go ahead, Aaron. Um, 
Nah, someone else go. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought you had something. No, that's fine. I was go checking ahead, Neil. to see what my uh what my fever was at at this part of the show. <laughs> You're checking your temperature. Yeah, we were down to 99 degrees. Yay, as opposed oh, to 100. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I got myself a little thermometer. It takes eight seconds. <sighs> um, so as I, you know, basically, um, I think an important part of this was like what Al brought up in regards to the Tammy Strobel show, was that I think a lot of people get the impression that they want to own their own this and their own that, and this is an issue of uh, values that I think is going to need to change. Um, and it has to do with also just the way that people think about owning things in the first place. And I think that a large part of that is that they mistrust it. The need to hoard and to own is a reaction to scarcity. Um, once that scarcity is not there, then obviously you don't really think about it as much. You know, um, there are some things that we're already conditioned to understand this, like bowling shoes. There are a lot of people who bowl who do not own their own bowling shoes. They go to the place where you bowl. And there, you borrow shoes. You know, and you check the them bowl. out. Right. <laughs> the bowling ball, you know, some people want their own bowling ball. I can understand that because that is a little bit more specific to each person. But there are all most people I know who go bowling don't bother to own their own balls. Other than the people who are really into it, in which case that's the exception that we even, you know, that obviously is still completely permitted within the resource-based economy. But the the reason that I get at this is that people don't recognize how the majority of their stuff just sits in their house. Like, oh, I mean, I don't throw out an arbitrary statistic, but, you know, I have a lot of camping gear in my closet. Um, I use it once a month, if that. You know, I don't use it at all during the winter. Uh, and I use it, you know, I, I don't even really need it very much once a month anymore because my outdoor activities are close enough to somebody's home that I end up staying the nights there. So I have camping equipment that I don't use very much. I have other equipment that I don't really use very much. That You know, your house is generally full of junk that you don't really think about, you know, until you're moving it, just like Aaron pointed out earlier. <laughs> you know, you're you're not thinking about the fact that you know, I mean, it's for the longest time, I mean, I've always been a minimalist, so maybe it's easier for me to understand. But, like, uh, throughout my bachelor years, everything I owned fit in a single television-sized box. Remember, like, you could get those big cardboard boxes that TVs would come in? That's that's basically what I would move from place to place when I was a, when I was a bachelor. It had my clothing in it, maybe my video game system of the time or whatever, but I didn't have a bunch of junk, you know, and... Because of that, moving around was so much easier. And that's the thing of it, I think, that people don't understand. It's like Peter points out in the uh, orientation guide. He says, you know, if you want to own your own golf clubs, go ahead. You know, that's on you. You know, if you want to take that burden on yourself, go right on ahead. You know, but you don't have to because if you go to the local golf course, there's going to be golf clubs there. You know, and the the next argument that the free market people bring up is they're like, well, then there's no incentive to take care of them, you know, as if everybody would just go, oh, look, these are free golf clubs. I'm going to go wrap them around a telephone pole, you know, <laughs> no, no particular reason for me to take care of these, you know, mm, other than the right. fact that, you know, any decent person knows better than that. I mean, you know, for frick's sakes, people, come on. If I ever did that, I can, my mother's been dead for three years and I guarantee you, I would still hear her, her voice in the back of my head going, what the hell do you think you're doing? 
if I ever did something like that to some public property, like, you know, publicly owned golf clubs, it's all about values, people. You know, if that were the case, every single, you know, library book that was checked out would be put through a shredder just because I felt like it. You know, <laughs> there's so many stupid, you know, straw man analogies that these people come up with, you know, and it's, it's something that I was talking to because I just did that presentation at the Agoro internet conference thing and in retrospect I really wish I had just went ahead and slept in because I was sick um, but you know one of the things that I realized when I was dealing with some of these people is that there's this spoiled brat mentality in the consumer culture that when I give right. them the intellectual explanation for saying well we're only going to manufacture cars that are you know proven to be the most uh, ecologically sound and the most efficient in their use of energy Sounds simple enough, right? Well, not yeah. for these people, because then they're asking you the retarded question of, well, what if I want the inefficient car? And I'm like, <laughs> they're worried. What if I want to maintain it? I love my car, right? You know, you're threatening, it's like we're threatening their rights to be stupid. You know, that's <laughs> what it amounts to. I want to have the right to be inefficient and stupid. You can't stop me, you evil authoritarian trying to tell me not to waste resources. Yeah. What if I want the inefficient car? Yeah. Right. You know, and most just, people most you, people have I'm sorry. Well, you you come to a point where you have to explain to them the basic laws of nature. They'll tell you that they understand the basic laws of economics, but the laws of nature state that it doesn't matter how much Ayn Rand you read, if there are only 5 apples left on the earth, you can't have six. Period. <laughs> That's the end of it. There are no more than five. It doesn't matter how free you think you are. You can't have six. Or we, how much we, you want it. <laughs> right. We get to a we, point where we have to start thinking logically about our consumption and change it over to, you know, uh, being how we make it so that everybody has access. And that's the point that I don't think people the, understand, and they're not the thinking, they're not comparing it to the things that they already have access to. Al, you're obviously chomping at the bit, spitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to say that uh, we tend to um, forget that, I mean, we haven't yet realized that if we learn to share our stuff, we wouldn't have to overproduce and that is really sad. I mean, they, they, they. It, it's, it's not just about, um, it's not just about renting stuff or checking stuff and and checking in. It's, it's about not overproducing unnecessary stuff and keep depleting and destroying the land we need to survive. I mean, the, the, there doesn't seem to be this connection in many people's minds. I mean. I mean, I, I even hate my freaking TV. I, I, about two years or so ago, I bought this huge 50-inch plasma TV, and we were so happy, and, and, and it was like having a cinema theater at home. And, and, at, and for a while, it was, it was fun. But, but uh, I mean, it's, it's just a freaking... Uh, I, don't, I don't even watch television anymore. It depresses me. It annoys me so much. It makes me feel useless. It makes me feel retarded. I can't stand it anymore. I mean, it seems that I I've seen it all when it comes to the freaking two. I just can't 
I just can't see the regular TV shows anymore. My friends ask me, oh, have you seen Dr. House? Have you seen CSI? Have you seen Nip Talk? Have you seen the Big Bang Theory? Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> I actually enjoy the Big Bang Theory. That one is kind and of I, funny. But and, and I say, yeah, I say, oh, yeah, I've seen dozens of versions of, the, of those TV shows in the past, and the plots are always the same. In those TV shows where they pretend to be doctors, they always try to show these charismatic, super smart doctors that are always so concerned and worried about finding the cure for their patients in a, in a very short time. They often try to portray this picture of a whole group of doctors working together desperately to cure the poor-looking girl suffering from some mysterious disease. Not to mention that they always try to maintain this notion that if you are born in the right country, such as the so-called fir first world, then you'll get royal treatment, or else you'll have to suffer in the hands of those ignorant, heartless doctors in the other countries. They always, they always make so much emphasis that the bright minds can only be found in the first world. They know and that this right. They know that this type of stories are exactly what their people want to see. This is what people love to believe that the medical establishment, for example, is always watching our backs. Well, sure, as long as you have the money to pay, right? As long as you are lucky enough to have insurance, you'll have access to these highly expensive therapies with those expensive industry medications that will make you even sicker in order to keep you as a regular customer. Sorry yeah. to sound so cynical, but that's how the medical corporations work generally right, speaking. But, but oh, Al, I love that. Al, I, hold on a second, Al. I, I have to interrupt you because, as one of my listeners pointed out, you know, you're being very unfair to the show House because it's obviously different because he has crappy social skills and is a Vicodin addict. You don't even <laughs> think about that. He's a drug addict. I mean, that's what makes it such a unique and amazing show. Yeah. Yeah. And I love those episodes of those shows, you know, where these doctors, really, really, these really fine doctors work really hard at trying to figure out how to screw the insurance, those evil insurance companies, into allowing this person to have the surgery that they desperately need. Right, because that's never, right. yeah, that's probably the most unrealistic part about that. Now, Aaron, you had something to add? Yeah, um, it's kind of on a different tangent, but um, I was just thinking about, like, once you introduce the whole idea of private property and ownership, it kind of, there's always the chance of getting more. And it leads to an almost addictive behavior, kind of like Peter points out in moving forward. Like, there's always the want of more. No matter how much you can own, you can always own more. And that's a temptation, and it's something that um, in incentivizes being greedy or doing bad things in order to get more for yourself for that temporary relief or that temporary happiness that it gives you to, you know, buy a new building or whatever a rich person buys. <laughs> right. Right. It's the social stratification element because that's something to brag about. You know, when you could say that I've I own this many Fortune five hundred companies or whatever, then there's an element to that, even a sex appeal, because women are interested in, you know, people who have money. It's not, you know, it's not just women either. You know, there are men, for example, who, you know, they only want a woman who's going to compliment them in that way. You know, and it's basically, that's the reason that it's an addictive element. 
is the same reason, you know, why being a bully in high school is an addictive element because you get to look bigger than everybody else. You know, it, there's an element to that social stratification that makes people excited. And it's the reason why people seek to be on the top socially. And money is a means to get there. Um, um, so. Yeah, definitely. And even right. um, like for not so rich people, like they can, they'll hoard smaller items. Like if you've ever seen a TV show about hoarders, I haven't, but I know it exists. Um, they they don't they don't get to buy the big Fortune 500 company, so they compensate by buying 800 dresses or 600 pairs of shoes or something like that, because they keep thinking, and oh, maybe the next one will be the one that makes me happy or something like that. Mm. I don't know. Right. It, it, yeah. There, there is this provable paradigm that the more you have, the more you want. Right. Well, yeah, and, and yeah. like a bad drug, it's it's a limited high because there is a feeling about it for a brief period of time. Right. But it wears yep. off. Yep. You know, it's just like heroin. You know, you use it because you're getting that promise of heaven, and then the thing that you purchased isn't really interesting anymore, so your high is worn off. You know, so yep. now you need to go buy something new. You know, yep. and, and that's the... Right. And we've proven that that is a chemical factor. It's a chemical reaction, actually, within your brain... And that's when it becomes physically addictive as well. Um, because, you know, it's just like uh, gamblers. You know, people who become psychologically, therefore chemically addicted to gambling. There's that, that rush. The funny thing is, is it's not the winning that they're addicted to. It's the anticipation moment before they are either winning or losing. That's the moment that they're addicted to. It's yeah. that moment when the, the ball is still spinning around, you know, on the wheel it's not the moment of when it lands. It's the anticipation that gets people chemically addicted. Um, and if I could, if I could add to that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, if, if the topic is addiction, that that might be something worth bringing up with uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, because uh, uh, that would probably be an interesting tangent to go off on on your next show with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that isn't the only aspect of it. Uh, the reason they get so addicted, uh, people tend to get so addicted to ownership, especially the large things like property and, ha- and homes. It isn't just that they have this uh, this addiction to owning things, and, and, and but also it's because they know they know for a fact that these uh, that such resources are scarce. They know that these resources can, by one way or another, be taken away from them by something somewhere along the way. So the more they acquire, then then the more they have left if something wrong happens. And I had one other uh, tangent I, w- I wanted to step back on. Uh, when you were talking about those guys who want the inefficient uh, the inefficient car, uh, what I would have told that individual uh, was if you want an inefficient car and we're in a resource-based economy, fine. Go pick one out, take it to a custom body shop, uh, take the engine out and replace it with a hamster wheel. Have fun. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so that they can do the running themselves, like the guys in the Flintstones. <laughs> I, I would like to con- uh, congratulate you uh, right now, Neil, on putting together a rather intelligent uh, panel here, and I would like to pose this one to the panel. Recently, in the forum, there's been this discussion. One person particularly has been vehemently proposing this notion of rationing resources within a resource-based economy. 
because, you know, as we all know, if you give everything away for free, everyone's just going to take and take and take and take and take until it's all gone. So we absolutely must ration these resources so that everyone gets an equal amount of everything and we don't lose it all. Okay, I, I disagree yeah, with this premise. I, me too. Go ahead, uh, Tim. That's okay. Yeah, I, I disagree with this initial premise. I mean, because because uh, we can uh, we can support uh, the notion that this take and take and take and take um, tendency is a result of the advertising uh, uh, the advertising industry. If you go fi- back far enough, you find a very frugal societies, and you don't you don't even have to go back. You can look at the more frugal societies that are around uh, here in the modern day. Uh, you, you know, here today. The, uh, if you actually examine other cultures around the world, you don't see everybody behaving the way we do. You will find societies that are very, very frugal, and, and they're not just so addicted to ownership the way we are over here. His premise is flawed. He, he hasn't even looked into it. He's just looking around at his own local culture and, uh, and probably projecting his own, uh, his own desires to a degree and assuming that that this is everybody. Right. Right. See, here's my here's my take on it. Um if you go about rationing resources, now we have lots of models that we can look at that actually mimic this very same thing. We see it every time we watch television and the commercials start coming on, typically six or seven of them back to back and at least two or three of those commercials every 10 or 15 minutes is going to say something about limited time only, hurry, limit one or two to customer. You know, right. this is a ra- this is an absolute rationing resource uh, resource rationing idea, and uh, and what the, why do they do that to get people to say, hey, they might run out. I better hurry up and get as many of those as I possibly can. It must be rare. Right. Like the No More Tours tour by Ozzy Osbourne, or uh, the little-known reason why Ace Freely left KISS was because they did a farewell tour and then intended to keep going anyway. And Ace said, um, we told the fans we were finished, so a bunch of people spent money they didn't have to come to our show because you told them this was the last time they were going to be able to see us. I'm out of here. Bye. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. He left KISS because he didn't like the dishonest practices of Gene Simmons. Um, right. We actually have a caller on the on the line here. I'm going to go ahead and bring him on. Uh, caller in the 916 area code. You're on the air. Welcome to V-Radio. Hey, thanks a lot. This is Bakari. I'm in Sacramento. I'm, a, I'm also a Zykeist member, so I'm not against what you're talking about. Okay, great. Now, what was your question for the panel? Well... Basically, I think I, I I agree with what you guys are saying about how the history of private ownership and how it has influenced it, how our culture presently influences it. But I'm, what I'm asking is, how do we manage and structure that under a resource-based economy? Because my idea would be is that at some point we'll have to have some kind of government kind of structure in order to make that happen. I don't think that people can just go willy-nilly and get whatever they want. I'm not trying to say rationale, but I'm saying to manage that so that, you know, it has some kind of equilibrium of distribution. So 
I'd like to see us more discuss that because I, I would agree that I think that most people that listen to your show right now pretty much agree with the notion that private property is not a good thing. So what do we do? What do we imagine? Because we can't, you know, of course, it's never been done. But what do you imagine can be done on the resource-based economy to manage resources? Well, um, I presume since you said in the chat that you've seen Z3, so you understand the concept of yeah. strategic access, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all right. I guess uh, let me let the panelists take a shot at it, and then I'll go. I think, uh, if I may, um, people seem to be thinking that the, the Venus project is going to, as if it's going to happen in just, just like that, in just a couple of years, everything is going to be different. Everyone is going to have to share. Everyone is, is going to quit their jobs. Everyone, I mean, uh, we have to understand that if we all manage to get to this level of, of civilization, it's going to happen gradually, as much as we like it or not, because we are so attached, still so attached to this monetary paradigm and we if if we manage to destroy it or to bring it down is going to happen gradually we at this point we are not ready yet to see this venus project happening so we have to arrive at it gradually working uh, get, uh how well like we always say you no know, getting rid of money gradually getting rid of debt gradually uh you know, helping each other, even uh, using less money every time. So we have to arrive uh, step by step into this consciousness that will happen in, a, in a, I don't know how many years. It depends on how fast we can spread this information. But it's not just going to happen right away. That's my approach on it. The difference yeah, being that We'll be moving slowly and steadily towards improving the situation instead of moving slowly and steadily towards destruction. <laughs> exactly. Right. Okay. Now, I'd like Go to ahead, Aaron. I interrupted Aaron. Okay. So he goes yeah. next. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say it's completely a value issue whether you say, like you said, whether we can have people just going and taking willy-nilly what they want. If their values are to not take more than what the system can support per person, if they understand that, they see like cuz it would be a say a computer that you can see what's actually available so you would know what is available like what um is actually realistically available for you and you wouldn't take more than that it's a value issue it's a cultural issue so like al said it would take time for us to shift towards that yeah no right. go ahead frank now uh my take on it is not uh, necessarily so much the physical aspect because yeah uh, actually we could physically transition into a uh, into a resource based economy virtually overnight but more importantly and more especially and most first we need to transition there mentally we need to make the value shift and that transitional uh, phase of it can take a good t- amount of time. That part might be gradual, but once we've gotten enough people who have made this value shift, then we could transition into it overnight, and we wouldn't have a problem. Where 
uh, on the government issue, you were talking about uh, some system of governance. And on that issue, I would say that the more governance you have, especially externally, the more problems you're going to have because that's just exactly what a governance is for. It's for handling problems, whether they're uh, real or perceived. So what wait, it, wait, what it ends up doing is creating a problem. Let the caller elaborate. Can I stop that point? You, see, you refer to two different things and structures here. You said that first that you have a computer that will decide some things for people. Then you go back to government and said, and I believe me, I have no love for government, but I'm just saying in terms of you said, well, government may be too overpowering, create problems that, you know, that shouldn't exist. But you, you, it sounds like to me when you choose to say the computer is going to do certain things, then the computer becomes the government in a sense. And I'm, and I'm just putting this out there, you guys, because I'm not, agreeing, I'm not disagreeing with resource-based economy, but what I do have a problem with is sometimes we we sound like we're romanticizing certain things, and we're not getting down to as much detail as we can. And my last point is I agree with the first person who spoke about the gradual kind of – it happens gradually. I think this is not an overnight thing. I think there's going to be a lot of resistance to it. You have a lot of rich, rich people in this world that's going to do – they're going to fight tooth and nail to stop it because they are greedy and selfish. And so it's going to be a, definitely a gradual thing to change attitudes and re-education – of ourselves, not somebody just telling us what to think, but re-education of ourselves and also a restructuring of society in a way that you don't need to have to have a big house, than, you know, a bigger house than, you know, a big giant house when you don't really need it. Right. Well, yeah, and those, those values can certainly change. I mean, I know that they've changed for me, although I was always kind of a minimalist. Nowadays, I look at some of the things that I wasted money on, like nice expensive leather jacket I had at one point, and I go, why did I do that? You know, it is possible to change those values within yourself. It's not going to be possible for absolutely everyone. Obviously, not everybody is as enlightened, you know, as some other people. It depends on the person. I was raised to be uh, free thinking from the beginning and to modify my thinking as I learned new things. Not everybody was. Um, but yeah, overall, you're definitely right. Now, go ahead and finish your point, Frank. The the real problem isn't so much in what we think, as in how we think. And that's what we really need to change. We don't really need to change what we think. We need to change how we think. And in changing how we think, it will alter what we think. Because how we think often is intuitively. We operate from this intuitive standpoint where things require or uh, get very little research and very little thought process into them. As a matter of fact, we've, especially here in America, we've created this lazy mentality of, oh, uh, that's just too involved and too complicated. I don't want to think about it. You handle it for me. And we hire government officials to do that. <laughs> yeah, we elect them because, you know, it's better to elect somebody else to make your decisions for you than to actually make your own decisions. That would be evil democracy. Right. But what is it? Wait, guys, let's, let's say this. What is it that, say that if we had a resource-based economy because the capitalism is falling, things are in disarray, and there's an opportunity to build a resource-based economy. Explain to me how do you see that happening. In other words, and I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious here, but I'm just trying to kind of go with what I'm hearing you. Is there, Do you see, okay, well, we'll get rid of government. We'll say we'll let government slide, no more government. People just kind of 
you know, you just kind of do what you do, figure it out. We'll get a, a database going here, and then you go into the database and you find out what you need, what's available, what's not available, and that's how you decide what you need and what you want. I'm saying I may be able to do that. You may be able to do that. I mean, my attitude is changed, but I'm not – I've never been rich. I've never been multi-billion dollar, multi-millionaire kind of rich. And so I don't have anything to lose. But there are a lot of people who have a lot to lose, and they're not going to give it up that, that simply. So my I'm asking is, is – if, we, if it can happen, say, in 10 years, because capitalism is definitely falling, what stuff do you see taking place? Do people just kind of do what they want to do? How does that work? Let me... Uh, I think, can I just okay. say something? Okay, but just so we're aware that Tenero has been waiting to ask a question right. over oh, here for a bit, so let's make sure that Sorry. we go ahead and answer the caller, but you know, okay. I'll let everybody answer the caller real quick, and then let's make sure that he goes next, okay? All right, okay. so go ahead. I'm going to start with Al. Go ahead and answer him. I think uh, we have been conditioned to believe for our entire lives that we are very incapable of of making uh, very tough decisions, very social decisions. We have come to the conclusion that we need leaders, that we need uh, presidents, that we need governors, because we they have everyone keeps telling us that we are too dumb, too stupid. To, to to make important decisions that will affect my neighborhood, my family, or or what have you. So uh, the uh, the idea from the Venus Project is that we can all learn to be leaders. We can all learn to to get to the next level in in our in our consciousness. So we can be uh, we can be multifaceted experts on anything. And the reason we are not do we we don't have that is because of this very primitive stage of of humanity. All right, go ahead, Frank. I heard you speak up too. Right when it when we think about all of the super rich people, all of the super powerful people, let's think about Bill Gates for a minute. Arguably one of the richest and most powerful, influential people in this world uh, at the moment mostly because of his computer systems or Microsoft, you know. It's Monopoly, system. cough, Monopoly. Yes. <laughs> um, he has a great deal of influence over society right now, especially with the Gates Foundation now having been formed, which is all about population control <clears throat> and uh, bringing a better infrastructure and health values to the developing nations. Um but what would he actually stand to lose in the process of an RBE? Really, honestly. I mean, if you sit and think about it, he doesn't actually lose anything. He doesn't lose a damn thing. But the only thing he actually loses is power. Otherwise, he doesn't lose any influence because if his arguments have any value and merit whatsoever, they will be considered and they will be implemented across society. And if they have no value and merit, then they won't be. Now so the, he really doesn't really stand to lose much of anything. Now the thing that um, I'm going to answer, you know, just to finish off your question, then we got to let Tenero go. But um, was that it occurred to me a while ago that really the the transition plan essentially that would lead to the the rich quote unquote giving up their power is when we make their power over us irrelevant. Um, as I gave during my presentation to the libertarians, I told them I said, look. 
you know, I admire what you guys are trying to do, but the concept that you're ever going to achieve any real change in the system that was designed to be a plutocracy in the first place is uh, naive at best and absurd at worst. Um, whereas what you should be focusing your energy on is using technology to free you, using technology to make the state as irrelevant as possible. They're not going to be able to get away with, at least not easily anyway, um, uh, they're, they're not going to be able to get away with the idea of just saying, well, it's illegal for you to live off the grid. They'd have to come up with some real seriously fascist, you know, explanations about how that's supposed to be kosher. The idea that I could say it's illegal for you to erect your own solar panels, to, you know, install your own geothermal heating and cooling system, and being able to get yourself off of, you know, any form of needing to get food from anybody else. They're not going to be able to get away with making that illegal without making it extremely obvious that they're being fascist. Um, which isn't likely to happen. And if it does, well, then we're already in a revolution anyway. That's what would, that's what the state would be in if you're to the point where the state is telling you you're not allowed to live off the grid. Now, living off the grid has another benefit, though, in that if we – the more people who do it, the more the system will start to collapse. The less people that are participating in the monetary system because they don't have to, because they're living off the grid, the more damage that will eventually be done to the system, and then it will collapse on its own. There's already not enough monetary interaction going on because of the breakdown of cyclical consumption. Cyclical consumption, if a mass of people got off the grid and became <coughs> outside of the system, would eventually destroy it entirely. It isn't going to matter if there's a bunch of rich people who want to continue doing what they're doing because it won't matter to us. You know, okay, well, if you want to play around with inflation and your paper funny money, you go right on ahead. I don't care. Because I have a solar panel system for my electricity and a heat geothermal heating and cooling system. And I have a hydroponic farming system that allows me to create my own food 24-7, so, you know, seven days a week. Um, and I don't need your money. Have a nice day, you know. And then they can go, you know, play with their paper money and their fake monopoly board if that's what they want to do. And that's essentially, I think, what would bring the system down. Is when enough people recognize uh, sustainable technology for what it is, which is the path to true freedom not markets, not being anybody's employee, but the path to true freedom is becoming completely self-sustaining and ironically self-responsible, which is another thing that libertarians understand. Um, that's what's going to bring down the system. That's what's going to put us in a position where it doesn't matter what they do. And becoming off the grid is not an unforeseeable thing. It's one of the first things that Peter suggested in uh, Zeitgeist Adena. People do it. It does require an initial investment, but after it's done, your need to in, in be involved with the, rate, with the rest of the economy is extremely minimized at that point. Um, so that being said, I'm going to go ahead and let Tanaro ask his question, and then we have another caller who wants to be added at some point, lot. too. So. Yep. Thanks a lot. Well, no, he wants to ask you a question, actually. Oh, okay. Well, uh, well everything that uh, I would have said has already been pretty much said, uh, but I would like to ask the caller, does he have any uh, outstanding concerns that have not been addressed? And I'll just hit those. Well, you know, I, I, I think that what you, uh, the last call, I mean, the last person just said about the, the notion that getting off the grid, you know, the, the, the economy's falling, I think that's going to happen. I think that's inevitable. But the question I think people keep coming back to, and if, when I talk to people about this, they do ask the question about management, uh, management of resources. And I really don't do a good job of explaining that without sounding to be honest, sounding romanticizing like you guys, I think some of y'all are romanticizing a little bit on that because we, we can't really tell for sure because it's never been tried. We, we would hope that people would have some enlightenment, that enough people will have that in order to move forward. But based on what, we, what we're experiencing right now for the last 
millennium. I mean, wow, man, that's, you know, that's going to take some time to change that many people's heads. And so that, right. I mean, I don't, want to try to, I don't want to try to solve this tonight, but I'm just saying I just wish we could think a little bit harder and, and, and talk about that more and more shows because it's not, uh, to me, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I don't think that we, this is, this is not an easy answer to that question. You know, okay. Um, you guys have attempted it. I appreciate your attempting to, to answer it, but I don't think it's answered. Okay. Um, I, I can make an attempt. Um, but if, okay. a, if a romanticized answer doesn't satisfy you, then hit me with a resource, and I can probably tell you a systemic way of uh, okay. giving everybody strategic access to it without having a governing system. Okay. So go ahead. Hit me with a resource. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't have one. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of like – I'm just – Basically, raising in terms of what you all are thinking. I, I'm, I'm going to think right. on what you're saying again, and I'll, I'll write up something or bring it yeah, up. Because I'm not, well, I'm not against what you're saying necessarily, but I just think the details are missing. No, right. he uh, says that he he will he would like to hear uh, an example of how to handle a single resource such as the water resource, as okay, the oil point. resource, and right. and and we can easily uh, debunk down or or to. Uh, or figure out how to solve e uh, issue by issue, resource by resource. I mean, that's right. that's the idea. If we if you okay. if you take one by one, it's easier than to say that we can all fix them all by uh, at once, right? Sure. Good point. We have right. to treat them one by one. Yeah. So if somebody's asking you a very vague question like, "How are you going to allocate resources?" Uh, tell them, "Well, we have uh, various technologies." Which resource do you have in mind? Which one do you think we wouldn't be able to uh, to allocate without a uh, without a governing system of some kind? Because if your concern is food, I can name off per uh, permaculture and hydroponics. If you uh, if your uh, if your concern is housing, then we can have computerized uh, um, computerized housing um, allocation of some kind. You know, where uh, uh, for both visitors and and permanent residents or long term okay, stop, residents. Stop right, stop right, stop right there. Stop right there. Okay. Well, that's what I'm. That's my point. When you say computerized kind of allocation of housing, now it makes sense to me. I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. But would you can would you agree that that is some level? Some people will see that as another form of governance, because I've heard that criticism of us, of the Zeitgeist movement, is that you know all society be run by these you know big old computers. See, that's what I'm okay. saying. We have to be. I think we have to be careful about how we're saying okay. certain things right. because of what people think. Go ahead. Okay, uh, I can I can respond into that. Uh, okay. If you if you input a couple of parameters into a calculator and you hit the equal sign, it gives you an answer. Is that governance? Okay. Uh, it depends on if it if it if it it depends on if it influences what if, that, if it influences what you do or what you can't do. Why? I mean, no, if you're because, trying to because me because if, if I impute if I impute some computation in. And I just do it because I want to see the value of that or the result of that. That's fine. But if I input, if I input certain information to say how things are going to be distributed, then obviously it affects, you know, not only me but other people. So, and 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 I, I agree. I think that see, to me, I have a problem saying that we use a computer to talk about managing resources. I have a problem saying that. That may sound dictatorial, but hey, so what? My thing is, is that we have to have some way of managing resources so people just can't go willy-nilly and, and use it the okay. way they want. I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking um, about dictatorship. I'm just saying we have right. to have some kind of level of management. Go okay, uh, here, here's a very simple question then. Okay. Would you rather have 
a computer do it who you know is not cannot be bribed and is not biased, or would you rather have a politician do it? No, I'm not talking. I'm not talking about in terms of when I say governance under RBE. I'm not talking. I'm, talk, I'm looking at it more like, you know, to me, a real democracy is about people coming together in different councils. You don't have no, you don't have no representative stuff. You know, scrap that. People coming together in councils all over wherever they live, and they're coming together deciding how resources. They say these are the resources that we have locally. These are the resources we have nationally. These are the resources we need internationally. We want to come right. together and discuss about how do we divvy that up. So we're governing ourselves, but there is some level of discourse, some level of planning. You know, it doesn't, but it's not a representative planning where you have just a few individuals that gets messed up. You elect a few individuals, and those individuals okay. wind up representing themselves. Yeah, but okay. the, the, dem- the democracy element isn't going to work either if, if, if it's led by irrational people. That's the thing that right. has to change. The methodology is what right. makes the decision. It doesn't matter if you have... 30 people in a democracy or one elected representative either is not efficient in comparison to, um, well, we use the scientific method and that which we can prove is efficient is adopted. That which we cannot approve is efficient is not adopted. Um, now, I, I just I need to bring on the other caller here, and he wanted to talk to you a little bit too. So, um, Sean, you've been added to the call. Welcome to V Radio. Hey, how's it going, everyone? You were talking about uh, the computer would pretty much. Are, are you thinking that the computer is going to tell you where to live? No, no, I'm think. No, I'm saying that's what it sounds like when we say that. I agree that we need to have use, use computers in the scientific method, but I'm also thinking that we also need to govern ourselves. And so by doing that, we come together in you know different formats. We 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 come together and plan. You know, we might plan how we're going to, you know, uh, do a collective farm or how we're going to uh, educate our children. But we don't have to have anybody necessarily telling us this high above, but people need to come together and be able to have a voice about decisions. And we use use technology. Well, yeah, hold on. They can. It's called the the participatory democracy system that Jacques Fresco describes, but it's not a democracy system in the concept of voting. The participatory okay. democracy system is a concept of, okay, we have a problem. How are we going to build bridge A over river B? Um, well, let's talk about the problem in a participatory open discussion. Everybody who has data to add to the subject, please bring it forward now. We have a, a big computer system that allows everybody to share their ideas in an effective format, and then we then form a hypothesis about what we're going to do about the bridge. Then we test that hypothesis compared to other hypotheses, and the one that proves to be the most efficient, most structurally sound, scientifically through peer-reviewable and repeatable um, data is then adopted. That's the reason that it's different, is that it's not to say that, you know, you can have 30 people involved or you can have one person involved. What matters is the methodology. It doesn't matter if the entire country was consulted about the fact that man could fly. Man could fly irrespective of whether or not everybody else approved of the idea. You see, that's the difference in governance that we're talking about. You can get a group of people together who could decide that the Wright brothers' plane will never fly. You know, and that's what we had. The, the, the physics community at the time was writing books about why man would, you know, man would never fly. Okay, but science, when utilized correctly, 
without any politics or ignorance left in its way, proved that man could fly. Okay, And that's the reason that science works better as a decision-making system, is that in science, if for some reason you, know, you are proven quote-unquote wrong, you're never wrong. Because what happens is, whatever was now proven to be correct becomes the science. As soon as you find out that man can fly, well, now we have a new science. It's called aerodynamics. You know, that's the application that's very different. When it comes to people participating, of course they get to participate. But at the end of the day, if there's 300 people who say, man can't fly, but I can demonstrate that, in fact, man can fly, well, those 300 people don't just get to vote and make the books say that they can't. That's the reason who, who, that who, who tells that's them the that? reason that it's Wait, but, who, but, who tell, but who tells them that? Do you do you tell them that? Who tells them that? Who who, make, who makes that degree? And I'm you again, teach, no, 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 I get it. I, who, I understand your question. You you teach okay. people. Everybody learns how to you know apply science in our system. Education is free. Critical and analytical mm-hmm. thinking is at the core of that education. If you want to prove a politician wrong, you don't have to wait four years for him to get out. You just do an experiment and prove that he's wrong. Period. Using the science you know, So if your bridge doesn't work, then I can prove that. If my bridge is well, better, I, 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 think, I can prove that. I, I think um, there was a, I'm not sure if you heard of a magazine called Z Magazine. Have you heard of that? No. It's, it's a magazine that comes out. It's been coming out for years. Uh, it features Norm Chomsky's writing and stuff like that. And that magazine is the only one that has talked about participatory democracy. You know, I didn't know about Jacques before and said something about it, but... The Z magazine in the film, um, just real quick to to let everybody know, Jacques Fresco's views on participatory democracy are described in the film that he did with uh, William Gazeki, uh, Future by Design. So, and, and and actually, actually, there's a book by Z magazine about participatory democracy. It doesn't go as far as the the monetary, you know, the resource-based economy does. But it does get to the question about how do people involve in decision-making process on a scientific method. And so I'm saying is, is this is the kind of detail now that I think that you guys are coming out with. This is good detail that needs to keep being discussed because otherwise when you say that a computer will decide something, that, that, that doesn't sound too good for people because they don't understand that right now. So you well, have to break computer, that down. No, and, I, and I understand where people get that from, but the, the computer is yeah. just going to be programmed with the same algorithms and regardless – if you notice, sure. all the analogies that Jack talks about when he's when he's talking about this, point out, you know, he gives examples of my instruments tell me that I'm, you know, this many miles up. My thermostat tells me that it's this many degrees in the room. You know, the machines aren't ruling me. They're giving me suggestions, given on information that I'm not capable of of calculating myself. It's a tool. Okay. You know, right. Being... And let's 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 do this. I'm saying is. Another film, say if we bring out another video or whatever, it might be just dealing with the, the solution. In other words, it might look at the things you just talked about and break that down, not just quoting Jacques. I mean, I have no problem quoting Jacques. I think Jacques is a very astute man. I'm just saying let's, let's try to break that down for the common man so, and man and woman so they can understand that more better than in making it sound like it's romanticized. That's all I'm saying. I, I think, you know, that's I, I think what, it sounds uh, to romanticize the people. No, no, that is what the movement's about, Sean. And I, the reason that I quoted Jack was that, um, at least in this instance in particular, is because the questions of where do our belief structures come from come up. And when I point out that even Jacques Fresco himself says X and that he's at the core of our thought process because he's the one who created the resource-based economy, I'm referring to that so that people can get the better examples. 
But yeah, I yeah. see where you're coming from. I don't want anybody to idolize him either, and that's one of the reasons we have this tricky situation wherein, you know, they don't want to be the quote-unquote leaders of the movement. And the reason why is because you can end up with situations like the, the Ron Paul revolution. Those guys will mm-hmm. do whatever they perceive Ron Paul is saying, whether or not they like it or not. And that's how I figured out I didn't, couldn't fit in, because I'm not like that. And he did some things I didn't agree with, and I, I told people that, and I got in trouble for it. <laughs> and that's not okay. the kind of movement that you want to be part of, and it's not the kind of movement they want to be part of either. It doesn't mean well, that that's the reason why I'm speaking up as, as, a, as a dedicated member. That's the reason why I'm speaking up about you know this is the things that are going through my 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 mind, and I admit that I may not understand certain things. So I'll say I don't understand it, but I think that we we want to lead each other to, to ask questions about of each other because we're I'm, I know I'm speaking to an audience that I assume pretty much are in the movement for the most part, and so well, I hey, know I what I'm speaking. I brought you on the call, didn't I? Huh? <laughs> No, no, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, no, that's what I'm saying. I feel comfortable. I want to be able to feel comfortable like we're doing. I appreciate and I thank you for allowing me to come in and raise these questions because I think it's important that we all do that, that we keep raising questions so that we can better understand it. That's what all about. You know, that's that's why I tell people, and we get a – some people are critical of the fact that, like, you know, and you didn't do this, so don't think that I'm referring to you, but – you know, they'll say, well, you know, we we, we won't answer any dissent and all that other nonsense is that the – the fact is, unfortunately, a lot of people that are asking the kind of questions that you're asking also throw in all kinds of personal insults and other oh, garbage. I know. I know. That we don't waste I know. our time with. Yeah, and I didn't want to come yeah, across. Problem. I didn't want to come across that way. People are going to be intelligent about it. I mean, I endured mm-hmm. a whole hour with Stefan Molyneux, and you know, I had a fever during that show too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, Sean called in, and I need to because we're we're running out of time, so I got to make sure okay. Sean gets an opportunity to talk about what he wanted to talk about. Thank you for calling in. Thank you too. Appreciate um, it. If you have more questions like this that you would like to do V Radio about, we can do a whole show where my panel talks to you about this stuff. You kind of called into the last quarter of a show, which means we didn't really get to cover everything you wanted to do. So I don't want anybody, including you, to think we're dodging you. If you want to do a show about No, you're this, not. No, you're right. not. And I don't want to try to answer tonight, answer everything tonight. It's, it's something we'll constantly be discussing. That's all. I'm not trying to – I don't want to take over the discussion. I just I appreciate you letting me come in and, and, and raise it. No problem. Well, get in touch okay. with me, and we'll do a show about your other questions, okay? Okay. All right. All right. Thank thanks you. again for calling in. All right. Sean, you have the floor. Hey, everyone. Uh I just find it funny that a lot of people are still talking about the whole population control issue. Uh, Yeah, it's really actually funny as hell. Uh, Sorry about that. Uh, But I ended up writing a a paper about it, and I submitted it to the the newsletter. So hopefully everyone could read that whenever. Um, But yeah, it's... It seems like the best way for them to be able to consolidate the amount of money that they actually do have and be able to accumulate more would be with population control itself. Right. Well, you know, the thing that I want to bring up about the population control thing is that we keep getting associated with that solely for saying, hey, guys, you know, the planet can only sustain so many people. Just maybe it might be a good idea not to have more people on the planet than the planet could sustain. <gasps> oh, my God! Did you hear him? He said he wanted to set up death camps and, and slaughter us all. Death to the New World Order! Death to the New World Order! <laughs> my father died in the gulag! Okay. No, dude. What he said was, 
the planet can only sustain so many people. Maybe it's a good idea that we try to not have more people than the planet can sustain. You know, it's a real simple argument that gets blown out of proportion. Um, and even then, we're talking about solving it through education, which is to educate people to the notion that this many people can be can can you know safely be put on the planet. This is another one of those. Well, what if I want the inefficient answer questions that comes up? You know, wherein you end up in a situation where, well, what if I want to have six kids? Are you going to stop me? You know, well, just because the planet can only afford for me to have one kid, well, you're being a tyrant if you won't let me have six kids. Yeah. So unless you won't let me decide to have six kids on the planet that can only allow one, well, then you're an evil person, you know, and I should be allowed to have five kids that'll starve because the planet can't take care of them. That's my right. It's you're, 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 you're hindering my right to be stupid. I want to be allowed to be stupid if I want and have five kids that the world can't support. You know, <laughs> th this is the retarded line of logic that these people run down. And even then, we're not going to stop you, man. You want to have those five extra kids? You know, that's an irresponsible, stupid, tyrannical move on your part. You know, that, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. If, if your family can only support two children, most people don't choose to have eight. You know, it, it stands to reason. I shouldn't have to, you know, nobody's going to force you to do anything. Now, there were a couple people who wanted to say something here. We don't have a lot of time left in this segment, but I like this panel. I have to have you guys on again. Al, you had something, and then Aaron is next. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. So let's just assume that we uh, get to this uh, Venus uh, society. Maybe if we... If we uh, learn to make uh, more uh, reasonable, more responsible decisions in this planet, maybe we could actually have the, uh, the benefit of having as much kids as we want, right? But the problem is we haven't yet controlled, learned to control this, this, uh, these resources. So maybe we could arrive to that level where we could have as many kids as we want. We could have anything we want. Right? Yeah. I'll just yeah. have anything I want. I mean, irrespective <laughs> of whether or not the resources actually exist, but I should be able to take whatever I want because I'm free. <laughs> exactly. I mean, remember? Hey, but I want six apples. If there's not five, well, well, well never mind. We'll use a copy machine. Yeah. <laughs> I'll eat New York, the big apple. We'll, so, so, we'll so, make a digital one. So my point is, if we get to this point in in in, in humanity, we could have uh, access to to anything we could uh, we could possibly want. At this point in time, we can, we cannot predict the future. We are only assuming that um, that we have to be smart in in how we we spend our resources. But we don't know. Maybe in the future we could have anything we want. Six kids, ten kids, whatever, you know. It's impossible to be sure at this point. Well, we can but, certainly make a better estimation that, like, endlessly taking when we don't know the limits is probably a bad idea. Yeah. But, and that's, it's it just, you know, I, I know I made, made some silly comments about it. It's just, it's it's so annoying to me that people think that they, that that we're trying to hinder their rights when we point to the very obvious limits of what's here on the earth. 
And that's right. why I use the, the, the spaceship example, because it scales it down more. You know, if you're out on a spaceship, and that's actually an excellent example of a centrally planned economy, a resource-based economy at that, is when you're on a space mission, there's an entire team whose job is to calculate exactly how much food, exactly how much cabin space, exactly how much everything. And if somebody deviates from that, it's extremely obvious when it hurts everybody else on the ship. Um, people don't recognize that the Earth is very quickly becoming very small because of population increase and the impact that our planet's technology has on the planet itself is getting bigger as our technology gets more advanced. <coughs> now, Sonaro, you had something? <laughs> yeah, I was just laughing in my head whenever you bring up the the, uh, the spaceship uh, analogy. I'm thinking uh, I'm thinking the, about the analogy you said earlier about hindering their rights to be stupid, and I'm and I'm hearing you making uh, making that voice in my head saying, "But you're uh, but you're hindering my right to shoot a hole in the command module." Right. Uh, <laughs> this gun rights are, are you going to take my guns? <laughs> but there was something. I have the about, right to shoot you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but there was something that the previous caller had said, and I wanted to correct him uh, uh, before he got off. But that's okay. I'm sure he's probably still listening. Whenever I mention something about uh, a computer uh, showing you uh, where all you can live, uh, you know, uh, some kind of housing uh, management computer, um, I didn't mean to imply that you put in your parameters and it gives you only one response. It might give you 50. It might give you 100. It might give you every home for the for the most adjacent 15 cities around you and give you an ungodly list of places for you to live whatever happens to fit your parameters and that's the that's the kind of resource allocation uh, compared to the system we have today i i had an analogy that i used uh, um here recently comparing the current system uh, to the resource based economy is like comparing uh, an abacus to a modern graphing calculator. Right. And that's what we're rising up to. We're getting away from these manual little wooden pegs, and we're getting into something that is efficient, that can, um, um, this quicker. Right. And it requires a lot less manual effort. And that's all we're really doing with that. Right. Okay. Um, now, Aaron, you just brought up a book. Apparently, by Buckminster Fuller called The Manual to Spaceship Earth? Yeah, it's called Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth. It's a really great book and written back... Uh, all right, I'm going to mess this up if I try and name a date. I think I'm going to say um, the 60s. Oh, someone gave a link in the chat, so just go look there. But it's a great book, and it talks about systems theory. It's a, very similar to... Um, Jock's train of thought. I think it's on the reading list. It's a excellent book. It's kind of ironic that that came up since I had given you the spaceship analogy to, you know, to use in your movies a while ago. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I'm not even familiar with that book, but it's you know that, that's another thing about the overpopulation issue. When you're on a spaceship, there's a very specific point that they tell you, hey, don't have any kids while you're on the mission. Be a good idea. Because we've <laughs> only got so much stuff on there. People tend to forget that the Earth is a closed system, um, that it does have some renewable resources or resources that regenerate, but not at the rate that we're taking them. We're now down to the last uh, 60 seconds or so of the show. Thank you for calling in today, Sean. Thank you, everybody, for being on my, you know, as was put, very intelligent panel. Yeah. Um, 
I'll talk I'd I'll like to you a little uh, bit off the air after the show is over. I'd like Go to ahead. remind everyone to keep an eye out for my show. It will be starting up either Tuesday or Thursday next week. Right. And what was your website again, Aaron? Uh, it's theinfiniteyes.com. Without the E at the end of the infinite, right? You can put the E. It'll still work. But, yeah, without the E. <laughs> All right, good. And my website, I've heard, is pretty cool. I've heard a pretty decent radio show is based out of it, too. It's called V Radio. And uh, I've heard that it's v-radio.org. It's just a rumor, though. A great show, by the way. Oh, so the rumor is true. You've heard of this great show called V-Radio. Absolutely. It's excellent. It traversed all the way into Mexico. Exactly. It crossed it's everywhere. Everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> I'm wow. selling it over here now. <laughs> all right, guys. For listening. Hey, all right, everybody, say goodnight. Goodnight, guys. Night. You have to say goodnight too, Aaron. Goodnight. Aaron. Goodnight. <laughs> All right, Aaron. guys. Thank you goodnight, for tuning guys. in to V Radio. <laughs> I'll talk to you guys a little bit off the air. Hey, uh, Aaron. We're not off yet. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.